This morning we are going to talk about the resurrection, obviously. Uh, Christ has risen just as he said. Now, I, I have the passage up there, 1 Corinthians 15. We're not going to look at that entire passage, but we will reference that later on in the message. But last week we took a deep dive into the triumphal entry of Christ. I sort of hinted at what we would be speaking about today when I said that the Passion Week begins with Jesus entering Jerusalem and culminates in him exiting the tomb. All right, so that's really the bookends that we're looking at here. Um, most Resurrection Sunday sermons that I have heard, and, and by the way, I, I, I don't want this to come across as any kind of a criticism, it's just an observation. The ones that I've heard include many references back to the account and the significance of Christ's death. Sometimes the events of the cross dominate the messages on the Sunday commemorating the resurrection. When we talk about Christ, it often revolves around Jesus enduring the punishment of the cross and paying the price of our personal offenses against a holy God. And then that can happen any week, right? His sacrificial and substitutionary death is something that we talk about a lot, and that is all good. There's absolutely everything right about that. Today, we will center our attention on the resurrection. That is, Jesus Christ rising bodily from the dead. Now, I want to stress, I'm not diminishing, again, the terrible price that Jesus paid, but rather focusing on Jesus' life-giving victory over death. Just as an informational point, 20 of the 26 New Testament books directly reference the resurrected Christ. Of course, we would expect the Gospels to do that right and others. The remaining books either speak of Christ as being alive or talk of his return or both. If he's going to return, folks, then he's recognized as being alive. Okay, so really all the New Testament books talk about Jesus as being alive. So that was our introduction. Sometimes I miss that slide. But um, the next point that we have here is we want to talk about the prophecies of Christ's resurrection. Christ's resurrection was foretold. And we're going to see that sometimes it was hundreds of years in advance. All right. Uh, there's a lot of particulars that are mentioned about Jesus' life, but obviously this is one of them. Now, it's good to remind ourselves that biblical prophecy is not undefined prediction. It is completely different from things like horoscopes or fortunes you might pull out of an after-dinner cookie. Okay? By the way, um, I don't think the Chinese even know what fortune cookies are. That's an American tradition there, so anyway. Prophesying also isn't vaguely foretelling of wealth or comfort or blessings or foolish predictions of future events. Again, these can often be very vague and general, right? Uh, someone tells you your fortune. You're going to meet someone important. <laughs> Great. You know. uh, now, it is true that some prophecies contain figurative language. Prophecies can also be vague to the hearer's when first spoken or prior to the prophecy being fulfilled. But prophets were specific and purposeful when they delivered God's advanced information of things yet to happen. And so we're going to see some examples of that. The first one comes from the book of Job. He was a contemporary of Abraham, and here he is talking plainly of the resurrection. So as we look at the Old Testament prophecies of Christ's resurrection, the first one is Job 19, 25-27. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at the last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Wow. This is a man, as we know, that was going through a very difficult struggle. He had lost nearly everything including his health, his children, his possessions, and so on. And all of this, he, he's, he's just working through all of this and trying to figure things out. But in the middle of his struggle, he has something that God has revealed to him. He knows that he will one day rise again, but he's also going to see his Savior. 
That's an amazing, amazing thought. Isaiah chapter 53, which we often think about when we think about the death of Christ, has some things to say about the resurrection of Christ too. We're just going to look at one portion of this, verses 10 and 12. There's a lot of words up there, right, on the screen, but that's two verses, okay? So Isaiah packs a lot in there. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Again, this is future. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed or, or his offspring. And we're not talking about physical offspring here. We're talking about spiritual offspring. He shall prolong his days. Okay, The he shall his, that's God the Father, shall prolong the son's days, right? And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for transgressors. This passage clearly foretells the death of Christ, the one who was going to bear sins. Add to that what verse 8 says, he was cut off from the land of the living. We see clearly that there are multiple references here, right in this passage, and, and there, there's other ones previous to this, that talk about the death of this he that Isaiah is talking about. And this he is Jesus is the coming Messiah. So Isaiah just as clearly communicates, something I just didn't do there, that the one who paid the price for our sin with his death will also enjoy the results of his work in life. That requires a resurrection. How was he going to be one of the greats? How was he going to um, be able to divide the spoils and all these other things that you're talking about Unless he's alive. Dead people can't do this. But it clearly says he died. And what's interesting is this is future reference. But he's talking in past tense. See, because in God's calendar, it's done. It was done before it took place because it comes from the mind of God. And so here we have Christ being foretold that he was going to pay a terrible price for sin. But he was going to rise again. He was going to bodily be coming from the grave. I also want us to look at Psalm 16, verses 10 and 11. This is from one of David's psalms. says, For you shall not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to, be corrupt, to see corruption. You will show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Now, I could talk about this passage and, and tell you what it says and everything, but I think the better thing to do is to go to the book of Acts, Acts 2, beginning in verse 22. If you'll turn there, you can see your pew Bible number is page 944. But as we turn to this, to this book, what I want to do is just give you an advance here. This is a portion of Peter's sermon. And this was obviously after the Holy Spirit came upon them. And now he's out speaking to his fellow countrymen and to others who might be listening. So as Peter explains the significance of Psalm 16, he interprets David's words. You're going to see them in this passage. But don't see only those. There's some great stuff here. Starting in verse 36. Again, it's a little bit of a lengthy passage, but just kind of let this wash over you. I mean, I, you, know, you can only cut so many things out, right? It says, starting in verse 22, Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands have crucified and put to death. So, again, just pausing for a moment, he's acknowledging Christ has died. 
whom God raised, verse 24, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it, he being the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope, because you will not leave my soul in Hades, or hell, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Sound familiar? Right? You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Now look at what he says here now. This is Peter speaking to the crowd. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with, with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, in other words, of, of, of those who would come from him, his lineage, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you see now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Wow. Folks, I, again, Peter does a great job of interpreting this passage. But let me just say, summarizing this, that he is talking about the Christ who came, the Christ who was foretold, the Christ who was foretold would die, is also the Christ who was foretold that he would live again. And just in case somebody misses it, he says that he is both Lord and Christ. He is both Master and the Messiah, the Chosen One. Of course, these prophecies about our Savior rising again is in addition to the many prophecies about his birth, his life, and his death. All right, so there's many, many other prophecies, and there are more really that have to do with his coming but, but, uh, and his resurrection, but these are the ones I wanted to concentrate on. There are also prophecies made by Christ himself about his resurrection. So here's Jesus now. We believe God the Son comes to this earth to uh, live a perfect sinless life for us and then to die. Now, we may consider older prophecy to be of greater importance, right? Because it, it, was, it happened so long ago, and that is pretty amazing. But even if a prophecy is fulfilled in a short period of time, but is one of those things that like, you really can't control this, right? Unless you are in control, then it's just as amazing. Every gospel, as we mentioned, records Jesus Foretelling his, foretelling his resurrection. Every gospel says that. So here are the different occasions, some of the different occasions that they recorded. So I'm going to have every gospel represented here, all right? And there's different events. Just so you know, I, I got a little shading in blue here. And this kind of gives us when it took place. And then the rest are talking about, about his resurrection. John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. And so the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you drove the money changers from the temple? Right? That's really what had just happened. So that because you just did these things. That's, that's what the text actually says. I wanted to give us context. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. 
Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. And interesting, they believed the scripture, that was the prophecies, but also the words that Jesus said. Okay? Next, in Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Luke chapter 9, beginning in the latter part of verse 10, or I mean, including the latter part of verse 10, and then verses 22, 20 through 22. Sorry, I'll get my numbers straight. Then he took them and went aside privately into a de deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one. Now, later on, he told them to start telling people, right? But right now he's saying, don't tell anybody this. Saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. Now they were on the road going to Jerusalem. Right? This is near the end here. This is near the time of his death. And Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, right? look, understand, is what he's saying. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him, and spit on him, and kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. One more passage from Mark. Mark 14, verses 26, 28. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is, again, right before his crucifixion, right? Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So the Old Testament prophesied his resurrection. Jesus prophesied, foretold that he would rise again. So now let's talk about the reality of Christ's resurrection. And as we do that, just a reminder, there are some who say, this, this isn't right. This isn't true. Jesus, even if, even if we say he's God, and even if we acknowledge that, God can't die, right? God can't be put to death. Now, I want us to check the language of the scriptures as we go through. There's going to be some reference here, references here about his flesh and things like that. But let's understand something. When Jesus died, he did not cease to exist but his body died. And now let's backtrack just a little bit. We believe that scriptures tell us very clearly that Jesus came and took on the form of a man. We believe that Jesus was an individual person completely unique in all of time from any other individual. He pre-existed. He has always been as God. But the scriptures tell us God is spirit. But God the Son came to this earth and took on flesh. And so we, we, we see him as a unique individual, as really 100% God and 100% man. Because here's the issue. There is no way that any man alone, woman alone, any group of men or women alone can somehow do something for themselves or for someone else to take away their sins, to pay the price of someone else's offense against a holy God. It is impossible. In other words, if anybody here, anybody here is saying, you know what, if I'm just good enough, if I just tip the scales in the right direction, I'm in. I'm going to be in heaven. Because God's not going to do anything to me. I'm a good person. Folks, I have some 
very direct and some very bad news for you. And I'm not being snarky. None of us are good. That's what the scriptures declare to us. None of us are good enough. That was what necessitated, that is what required Jesus to come. So for us to kind of stiff arm God and say, you can't do what you said you just did, is to shortchange his eternal plan. That God himself, and the only one who could, would make a way so that we could have life. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man, no woman, no child can come to the Father except through me. That's very important for us to just have in our minds as we move forward here. So now let's look at the realities of the resurrection of Christ, the God-man, dying for us and then rising again. First, one can only rise from the dead if a person is dead. (laughs) I realize that's kind of an obvious, but unless you die, you can't live again. There are those who say that Jesus really didn't die. As a matter of fact, this was a a problem in the early days of Christianity. Now, kind of what I addressed a moment ago, that that Jesus was not a man, they would say, I mean, that Jesus was only a man, that he, he, you know, he, he, and God can't die and all those other things. Sorry. I'm, bottom line is, back in the day, what they would say is, there's no way that Jesus could be a man because being a, having flesh is evil. The material world is evil. The spiritual world is the only thing that's good. And so you can't become something that is material. I can't get all the, into all the particulars of this argument, so we're just going to concentrate on the truth that we get from God's Word. Let's briefly look at Christ's death. Now, I told you we're going to look at the resurrection, but part of that is the reality of it, all right? Before Jesus was placed on the cross, he had sustained life-threatening injuries. He was beaten. He was whipped. Um, he was already in horrific shape. And then the cross was a torturous but effective form of execution. It was, it was a death penalty type of execution, type of, type of device. And then the scriptures tell us that Jesus gave up his spirit. Let's look at Luke chapter 23, verse 46. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus was nailed to the cross around noon. And by the way, the scriptures tell us, you know, around, about, you know, they're not looking at exact times here. It's not like a Western mindset, okay? At about three, Jesus gave up his spirit. Near 6 p.m., Joseph of Arimathea requested Jesus' body. He wanted to take it off of the cross and then bury him. So Jesus died after three hours on the cross and his body hung lifeless about three hours on the cross. See, what I'm talking about here is that Jesus died. Okay? Then we have the spear thrust through Jesus' heart and lungs that guaranteed his death. John 19, 33 through 34, and then 36 and 37. But when they came to Jesus, that's the soldiers that executed him, and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. That would have hastened his death if he was hanging on a cross. When they would break your lower leg bones, you could no longer push and breathe. So you hung and suffocated. All right? They didn't have to break his bones. All right? But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him who they pierced. Those areas were quoting from Psalm 34, from Psalm 22, and from Zechariah 12. Again, things that were foretold. You see, the mixture of blood and water indicates that the sack around the heart and lungs 
had now filled with water. This was advanced stages of trauma and death. And so when the, when, when the spear pierced his side and went through his vital organs, his lungs and his heart, both water and blood poured out. Basically, he was already dead. And yet, <laughs> instead of breaking his bones... He was pierced through his vital organs, the most vital organs. He was not going to survive that. He was already dead, but I'm just saying he was not going to survive that even if he wasn't. The other thing we need to consider is this. Experienced soldiers declared Jesus dead. <laughs> right? They, they had seen death before. Some of them quite possibly had been on this detail many times. They knew what a dead person looked like hanging from a cross. And this is what I found interesting. It's one of those things you just kind of pick up along the way, right? Christ's death was double-checked by Pilate. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage. So, so he, this is a closet follower of Jesus, right? Is what he's saying here. Taking courage now, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled. Okay, he's surprised that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. <laughs> and the other thing that's kind of on a practical side here that we just want to note Joseph would not have buried his Lord alive. And then we think about this. Jesus spent a portion of three days in a sealed tomb with no care, no food, and no water after sustaining massive injuries to his body. Now we know he died on the cross. I'm simply just giving you the facts. You know, he was dead, okay? The Jewish authorities were concerned about his disciples stealing his body, not rescuing him from the tomb. Let's look to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 62. It says, On the next day, so this is Saturday, On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate and, and saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how the deceiver said, after three days I will rise. All right? Now, let me just pause here just for a minute. They remembered what he said. They knew what the Old Testament said about him. They rejected all of that. But they remembered what he said. They weren't concerned about him rising from the dead. They were concerned about his body being taken. It says, Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead, so that the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. And so they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now, just as a practical note, okay, again, do you think that the Romans knew how to secure an area? <laughs> exactly. The second reason that we have is that there were hundreds of witnesses of Christ's resurrection. We know from the Gospels that the resurrected Christ appeared to Mary Magdalene, another Mary, and Salome near the tomb. He also appeared to the disciples several times, and we, we had that in our scripture reading earlier today. But I want us to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as Paul talks about what happened. It says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Okay, let's just set this up here. Paul got information that he's now going to turn around and give. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500. 
hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to, to the present, but some have fallen asleep. In other words, they've, they've passed away, they've died. After that, he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as, one, as by one born out of due time. Okay, in other words, I, I was kind of born out of order. Remember, Jesus, the resurrected Christ, the one that he was fighting against, because this way, that's what they called it, the way, this, this, this gospel, Paul was trying to completely stamp out. He, he was in the process of, of hauling people to jail. Some of these people were killed. And Jesus appeared to him, the risen Christ, and said, my paraphrase, why are you doing this? Stop it. Okay, right? Well, Paul recognized who he was. And Paul responded to him in faith, and it completely, totally changed his life. I appreciate what Brother Tim said during, during breakfast. And one of the things we need to understand is, is that this isn't just a bunch of facts. This is something that took place for a purpose, for a reason. And just like Paul the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it's a life changer. The scriptures even tell us that we were dead, but then we were made alive. We'll get into that a little bit more. So the next thing I want to look at here is the importance of Christ's resurrection. The importance of Christ's resurrection. There's several reasons for this. The first one is that it fulfills prophecy. Now, the fulfillment of the prophecies uh, that we just named are what I'm talking about. It was these and more. God foretold that this would take place. Therefore, the Father's word was at stake. The Son promised that it would take place. So the Son's word was at stake, right? So when we're talking about the importance of the resurrection, it's because it was fulfilled, it happened. Therefore, it fulfilled all of these things that Jesus said and that the Old Testament said about Christ coming, dying, and rising again. But it also authenticates Christ's ministry. Now, there's a little some parallels here, but for the most part, I, I think we're going to be able to see some differences as well, some additional things. Turn to uh, John chapter 3. I'm going to read a portion of John chapter 3 for you. Verses 13 through 18, and I don't want to forget verse 36. It's at the end there. So if I start talking, somebody just raise your hands. You, you missed 36, okay? And again, uh, as we consider this, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's the testimony that we have of one of the disciples of John. Okay, so John 3, starting in verse 13. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who has come down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, might be rescued. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, back down then to verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides or remains on him, on that person. The only way that we can have eternal life, folks, the only way that we can have that promise that Jesus made if we believed in him is that he's alive. So it authenticates Christ's ministry. Another aspect of it we see in Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and tested him, asking that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning, it should be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites. 
You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And by the way, Jesus had already been given them multiple signs. He had already done miracles. He had already done these amazing things. They rejected all that. As a matter of fact, he heals this man who has a withered hand, right? And what do they say? You did that on the Sabbath. You worked. They had the law all upside down. So he says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Well, what's the sign of Jonah? Again, it's a sign. It's an example. Jonah spent three days in the belly of the great fish and in essence was buried. He was down under the water. How that happened, how that all worked out, we don't know. But Jesus said, that's, that's the sign I'm going to give you. All right? So in other words, the resurrection is going to validate who I am. John 11, 25 through 27, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. That He's talking now to, to um, someone who is, is, is uh, let me, give me a second. It was him talking to Mary when he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Okay? He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. What what does she recognize? Only you could do this. Only God could do this. So Jesus did raise Lazarus from the dead. That was temporarily, right? He remained here, and then he was going to die again. But then he was going to eventually be in heaven. What we see here is Jesus saying, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. He's talking about our spirits. He's talking about the fact that we are going to forever be with him. But eventually, our bodies are going to catch up with that. Right? 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 through 17. Now we're into that Corinthians passage I was telling you about. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Real quick, first fruits. That is the first of something. It used to be, it's one of the ways that we can reference this is the feast of first fruits, where they would bring the, the first things that they brought from the field, the first best was given to God before they actually harvested the full harvest, the full crop that God had provided for them. We're talking about the children of Israel, right? So Jesus says, I'm the first fruits. Christ is risen from the dead. I'm sorry, Paul is speaking about Jesus. Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, for all who've died, he's the first one to come from the dead eternally, right? Forever. He's going to live forever. For since by man came death, he's really speaking of Adam, right? The first man. By man, the son of man, Christ also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, see, all die. He sinned. That's passed on to us. We have no hope. Even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. That's in Christ, all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. First, I'm sorry, Christ, the firstfruits. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. So now we see the connection here, folks. Our resurrection bodily is when Christ comes back. Christ died, was buried, rose again, and now we know that that living Jesus is going to come back for us again someday. Now, another thing that we see here in relation to this, the importance of Christ's resurrection, is that it guarantees the resurrection of all believers. We've already touched on that. It's hard not to with some of these passages, right? So we're going to look actually again at what Jesus said to Mary. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. It will take place. And whoever lives and believes in me, he shall never die. 
I want to read another passage for us in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. We said we'd be in this section of Scripture, and I want to read for you uh, verses 51 through 57 out of this passage. 51 through 57. 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, a mystery back in this day wasn't something you had to figure out. It was something that had now been revealed. Okay? It was something that was hidden at one time. And now I'm going to tell you what it means. We shall not all sleep, remain dead, but we shall all be changed. The we there are believers, are followers of Christ. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in a blink is what it's saying. At the last trump, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when the corruption has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does the resurrection do? What does Christ do for us? He guarantees the resurrection of all believers because of what he has done. Romans tells us some things as well. Romans 6, verses 4 through 6. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into, into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Right? That's he comes first, we come after. Okay? Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Again, that goes back to that practical aspect of the fact that our lives change because we have received Christ as our Savior. And now we look ahead to the resurrection. And then lastly in Romans, And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This he, right, is God. God doing a work through Christ to raise us from the dead. Wow. And it says there, mortal bodies. We're one day going to be changed. We're going to be different. I don't know how to describe it, but we're going to have perfect bodies. Mine's not perfect. Never has been, but boy, I know it's not perfect now, right? And then the other thing, folks, this is fascinating. I, I'll, I'll get there. Sorry. I'm all excited. Um, it, it is required. The resurrection is required for our justification. The resurrection of Christ is required for our justification. Let me read this for you. Now, it was not written for, and I'm giving you who this is, Abraham's sake alone. That's the context. He's talking about Abraham's faith. It was not written for Abraham's sake alone that righteousness was imputed to him, right? That righteousness was, was given to his account, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Whoa, that's, that's something. I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you, okay? Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've read the book of Romans. Um, at one point when I was in Bible college, we took a class on, on Bible study and we were studying the book of Romans for the school year, both, both first and second semester. Every week, we had to read the entire book of Romans. Now, notice I didn't say that I read it every week. <laughs> Wasn't the best student all the time. But 
we had to indicate that we read it or we got in trouble. But, and then we studied that throughout, throughout the entire year. Okay. As a pastor, I'm expected to really kind of know a lot of things when it comes to the Bible. And some of that's justified, right? But I must confess that this particular truth was greatly strengthened through my study this week. To be justified means to be declared right or innocent. Remember, we talked about that sin problem that we have. We often say that someone is exonerated of a crime um, uh, when they may have been accused of something that they didn't do, right? And then they find out, you didn't do this, you're exonerated, right? You're declared not guilty. But Jesus paid our debt for sin when he died on the cross so that we could be justified. He declared us innocent of all the charges that actually would have stuck without him. Do you understand? We were guilty. We are guilty. But that guilt's taken away. And in the same way, we are exonerated. We are declared righteous. We are declared just, as in not unjust, as in not a lawbreaker. Because Jesus took that account on us, on himself. And he gave us his righteousness. So this passage tells us that Christ's resurrection is an essential part of our justification. And then it kind of hit me. For us to be legally declared righteous, there has to be a body. There must be evidence that our debt had been paid. Without our Savior's death, there would be be a, a, no basis to dismiss the charges against us, right? But the resurrected Christ is proof that he paid that debt. And that's why it's essential. You know, the, a lot of times they say, well, you know, we can't, we can't uh, uh, say that this person was guilty of the crime of murder because there's no body, right? Well, this is the opposite legal aspect of this. How do we know that something was paid unless there's somebody that can tell us that they paid it? Unless there's proof that it was paid. Christ's resurrected life proves that he gave that life for us to begin with. And that is an amazing thought. So next I want to read a couple passages from Peter. I wanted to include Peter's writings because there are those who sometimes try to drive a wedge in between the New Testament writers. And they're like, yeah, you know, here's what Jesus said and here's what some other writers said. And Paul said this. And sometimes, you know, first of all, there's nothing to that. Okay, if if you really look at what the scripture is saying, they might not use the exact same language, but the meaning is obviously the same, right? Now, We can be reminded of what Peter already said in his sermon, but I want to look at a couple of passages from 1 Peter that have to do with this whole idea of resurrection. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 13. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied, who foretold this about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Well, what are the subsequent glories? That goes back to what we read in uh, Isaiah 53, right? Well, you can't have subsequent glories if you're dead, <laughs> right? So they're, they're wondering, how is this all going to work out? I mean, we've, been, we've had this revealed to us. What's going to happen? How is this going to take place? Then it says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. This is Peter's audience. This is those who are followers of Christ. And the things that we have now been announced to you, that through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So the prophets are like, what's going to happen? And the angels, God's, God's army, his messengers, they look down and say, what is this all about? They, they can't fathom this. It's, it's a wonder to them. And look at what he says later on in the book, actually later on in this chapter, verses 18 through 21 of 1 Peter 1. Knowing that 
you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest or made known in the last times for the sake of you who through him, through Christ, are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Folks, did we hear corruptible and incorruptible before? Paul's writings. Back in 1 Corinthians 15. So what's the point of all of this? We can't take what is corrupted and make it incorruptible ourselves. We have to have someone who has done something on our behalf. Christ. But if he remained in the ground, if he remained dead, he'd be corrupted like everything and everybody else. But he is risen. And so now we have the incorruptible Christ that has now given us an incorruptible life. What's corruption? It's, it's anything that comes in and, and alters and changes it and deludes it and actually destroys it, really. Here's a, just a quick, silly example of corruption. When you've had that new car that's not so new anymore and it's supposed to be silver, but now you've got a little bit of gold <laughs> like along the bottom. What is that? That's corruption. It's rust. It's going to deteriorate. It's going to go away. Right? I'm 50-some years old. I'm deteriorating. I'm falling apart. I'm corrupted. But someday, because of Christ, I'm going to be incorruptible. (laughs) Because of his incorruption. Because God raised him from the dead. One more thing. The importance of Christ's resurrection it should motivate our service. And we go back to 1 Corinthians for this. In the, in the la- very last part of that passage, it says this. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We've already seen that th- the real theme that we have in 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection of Christ. If we went back there, you would see that, that Paul actually tells the Corinthians in his letter, he says, hey, there's some confusion here. There's some people that are saying that there isn't going to be a, a resurrection. And he's like, look, if there's no resurrection, you have no hope. As a matter of fact, if there's no resurrection, what we're doing is futile. It's worthless. It's meaningless. But because... There is a resurrection because of what we have been given in Christ. Anything that we do for him is not empty. It counts. It matters and it matters for eternity. So where does this bring us? According to what we have read, a savior who didn't rise again would be no savior at all. The resurrection of Christ Jesus bodily coming back to life is an absolute essential part of our hope for eternal life. Only the God-man could do that. A spirit being, God is spirit, cannot die a physical death. A man only cannot die for other men. The God-man, specially born, specially existing for us. God the Son, come in the flesh, is the only one that can do that. Since God did raise Christ from the dead, all of the promises made by Christ and the scriptural promises associated with him are as sure as the air that we are breathing and the light in this room and the earth that is beneath our feet, folks. It is just as real. 
knowing that we are guaranteed eternal life with a perfected body and soul and spirit ought to change how we live here and now. So we should absolutely keep in mind the terrible price that Jesus paid to take away our sin and the sentence of eternal death and separation from God. He took all that away. But we also need to actively remember the resurrection of Christ and all that it means as part of the gospel, the good news of Christ. It is essential. We see that based upon what was written. We see that based upon what Jesus foretold. We see that based upon even what his disciples turned around and preached. We talk a lot and should talk much about the death of Christ. But today, let's focus on the fact that he is alive. Amen. And yeah, we, we kind of think of that as a foregone thing. But there's depth to that. There's reason for that. There is hope in him because of that. So, folks, as I said, I, I don't know where you're at today. I, I don't know, um, you know, where, where your thoughts are on this. But let me, just, let me just clarify a couple of things. Sometimes I've heard people use the term believer as someone who basically is someone who believes there's a God. Okay? Um, that's not how the scriptures describe a believer. A believer is someone who has placed their full confidence in God the Son, come to this earth, dying on the cross for our sins, and then rising again. Amen. Full confidence in what he has done. Not confidence in ourselves. All right? As I said, there are those who say that God can't die. The God-man did. You need to determine what that means for you. If you're a follower of Christ today, then that should cause us to live an obedient life, a life of hope, and a life of purpose. Because anything and everything we do for him matters for forever. If you are not a believer today, or maybe you're looking at this and saying, you know, I, I hear what you say. I hear the argument that you've given that, that Jesus is no longer in the ground, that there's hundreds of witnesses that testified to that, that he, he was written about, and that even as Brother Tim said, if you weren't here in breakfast, he, he, he said very succinctly that even though this is not a proof, right, or anything, these men who testified of him gained nothing earthly. They all died. His disciples all died testifying of him. So Christ paid the ultimate price. He, he, he purchased salvation for those who would follow him. He gave it all. And what he tells us is, we have to completely and wholly believe in what he did. And if you have not done that today, I invite you to talk to one of us. Even if it's just, you know what, I need to talk about this a little bit more. I don't understand this. Hey, that's fine. Here's the deal. Every one of us in this room, there was a point in time when we did not know who Jesus was. For some of us, we were children. For some of us, we were adults. My grandmother, who used to be a part of this church, received Jesus became a believer in her 80s. By the way, if not 80 yet, don't wait that long. But the point is this. We have to make a decision. And making no decision is a decision. No decision is rejection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider the gravity of this, there is much joy, much joy in knowing that Christ rose from the dead. There is hope. There is 
a promise of a life to come that is never going to end where we have perfect fellowship, a perfect relationship with you. We're not there yet, but yet you see us as already with you. We thank you for these promises. We thank you for the fulfillment of these promises. And we thank you that God, our Savior, is alive. We celebrate that today. And we pray, Lord, if there's someone here whose heart has been moved, that, that, that you are working in their heart and their lives, and, and, and they understand even today that they need to respond to you in faith, that that is the only hope that they can have. Lord, I pray that you'll, you'll just draw them to yourself, that you'll convince them in their heart, as you have so many of us, that they need a Savior. Not someone who just died for them, but someone who is living for them on their behalf. Someone who is guaranteed that we have a life to come because he is alive. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.